0: We are in Matthew chapter 24, so let's go there, Matthew chapter 24. Uh, We started this chapter last week, we did about the first half of it, so we'll finish the second half this week. It is primarily about the second coming of Jesus. We ended uh, our text last week with Him saying that He would be coming in the clouds with power and great glory. And we pick it up with the words that he says after that. So we'll look at verses 32 through 51. We'll finish the chapter. The title of this sermon is Christ's call to be faithful and wise in the last days. Uh, I am reading and preaching from the NIV this morning. Starting at verse 32, Jesus speaking says, Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer's near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at a a mill, one will be taken and the other will be left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour that you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant, whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour that he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. God is a church. Now we place ourselves under your word. It is your very word. There's a full and final authority that Christ has given us for the church. And it's true and inerrant. We place ourselves under it. We don't stand above it to judge it or... Make calls about it. We put ourselves under it. Trusting you, God, the way you've preserved your word and the way you speak to us through your word. Give us faith to believe every word. And give us unction to obey every word. And give us hope in these difficult days and in our crazy lives. For the word has told us that, Christ, you are coming again and you will set right everything that has ever gone wrong. Thank you, Jesus. May we live with great hope and expectancy. May we also live faithfully with great wisdom as your people in these days. So give us ears to hear. Please, God, anoint me to teach and preach for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the last chapter was, in chapter 23, was Jesus lambasting the religious leaders about their failure to recognize God's work In their midst, their failure to recognize and acknowledge, give attention to, and heed what God was doing in their midst through the coming of the kingdom with Christ. He called them hypocrites over and over again. And at the end of his rebuking of them, he said about the temple that there would come a day where the house would be left desolate. And the disciples were clearly perturbed by that. I mean, this was the central worship structure of all Israel. Jesus seemed to be making some judgment about or pronouncing some judgment about this temple and its destruction. So they asked him three questions, clarifying questions that we saw in the last part of the chapter, in the last sermon, in verse 3. They said, well, when will this happen? He had prophesied the temple being destroyed. When will that happen, they asked him. And we learned last week that happened in 70 A.D., And then they asked him what the sign of his second coming would be. What would it be like when he came? Would it be ambiguous or rather obvious? Jesus said, it'll be like lightning with power and great glory. You're not going to miss it. And then they asked him thirdly, and what will be the signs of the end of the age? Or the time preceding your coming? What will that time look like? Those are the questions that they asked Jesus at the beginning of this chapter. And in answering the last question, what will the world look like before you return, Jesus? Jesus warned them that there would be times where the world felt as though it were out of control. This is a review from last week. Times where it felt as though the world was out of control. He said there would be wars and rumors of wars. He said that kingdoms would rise up against kingdoms. There'd be international intrigue. He said the deception would be rampant in, rampant in the world. He said that there would be heart-wrenching things like famines and natural disasters. Jesus said that there would be times where the world felt like it was out of control before he returned. And he was cluing them in on the fact that those were the reverberations of a world in rebellion to God. He's not saying that those were judgments. Those were signs of the final judgment. They were reverberations of a world that is in rebellion to God. The place that we get to when we continually refuse to heed God and what he said to us. The world would get into a difficult place. And he said also in the the following uh, paragraph that there would be times where it felt in our world like the truth was losing times where it felt like the Christian faith was losing. Again, he described times of great persecution when his followers would be martyred, that there would be increasing apostasy, falling away from the truth, from the faith. That There would be an increase of wickedness in the world. And again, he mentioned deception. So in answering their question, what will the world be like before you come come back? Jesus said, it'll feel like it's out of control and it will feel like truth is losing. And then he says, but I am coming again and I am coming with power and great glory. In other words, Jesus is going to do something about the world that seems out of control from the effects of sin and the perception that the truth is losing, that Jesus Christ himself, the faithful and true witness, comes and sets right everything that has ever gone wrong and brings the chaos into that place where he says, Be still. And the truth is known in all the earth for Christ rules and reigns. And the rest of the scriptures tell us that when Jesus comes back, this again is review from last week, he will fully and finally destroy all the works of the devil. Someone say, thank you, Jesus. He will also righteously and mercifully judge humanity for all of its wickedness and rebellion. He will ultimately and totally defeat death. There will be no more death. He will undo all that has gone wrong and is chaotic in the world and he will renew all of creation to the way that it ought to be. And he will dwell with us, the redeemed of God, from every tongue, tribe, and nation in glory forever. So even though there are in the beginning of the chapter some frightening things, those signs that Jesus talked about, he is giving us incredibly good news in the news of his return. And when we hear about that, the first thing that we want to know, of course, is, well, when? Because that sounds so much better than the world that we're living in. A defeated devil, wickedness dealt with, death abolished, chaos undone and all things made new, dwelling with him in glory. That sounds so much better than the challenges of this lifetime. So when, Jesus, is what we want to know. But Jesus' goal here in this chapter is not to tell us precisely when. Rather, it is to tell us specifically how to live before he returns. We want to know when, but he's concerned with how we live while this good news is unfolding. And it's all really straightforward, the chapter. We make a lot of hullabaloo about Matthew chapter 24, and it seems as though there's so many questions, but it's all rather straightforward. Jesus came and he established the kingdom. Jesus is coming again to bring the kingdom in fullness, and we who are his people are to live in consonance with the kingdom and the essence and the king until he comes again. It's all really straightforward. We have through Christ and his finished work on the cross and resurrection from the dead been delivered from the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the beloved son. We are daughters and sons of the king. So while we await the king's return as members of the kingdom, we ought to live in consonance with the kingdom. Ways that are consistent with who Jesus is and what he's brought us. And still we wonder, when? And the constant refrain of the New Testament is soon. And we're just like the kids in the back seat of the car on a long journey, and it is a long journey, and we're saying, Dad, when? When are we gonna get there? Soon. When? Soon. Calmate mijo. Soon. Spanish for calm down, son. In fact, Jesus said in verse 33, we just read it, he said, it is near right at the door. When you see these things happening, it is near right at the door. My goodness, that's a big door 2,000 years later. And yet the scriptures are adamant soon. And Jesus then says something in juxtaposition to what he said in verse 33, it is near right at the door, that is meant to be a juxtaposition that creates tension. It's meant to create a tense space in which we live. It's meant to put us on edge. He says in the very same breath in verse 36, but about that day or hour, nobody knows. And he repeats himself over and over in the text that we just read. Nobody knows, you will not know. So he creates this real tension for our lives is his intention when he says, look, it's really close, it's right at the door, but nobody knows. And the Christian is meant to live in positive tension about the coming of the Lord. It is supposed to create this tense space where we realize that heaven is so close and we are already citizens of it though we live in this chaotic, truth-denying world and we have to live that out in this space. So that can be an uncomfortable space in which we live as Christians. So people have erred in two ways historically. Number one, they, they are adamant on setting dates over and over again. Okay, we think this is it and we, we interpret the signs and we read into the signs and okay, this is, I think this is it. They're adamant about setting dates and yet they ignore that Jesus says, listen, here's the deal. You're not gonna know. He says it over and over again. So I don't think that's an approach that we're supposed to take in the tension the other error that we often make in the tension is that we, we then just cocoon away from the world because it's not easy to live as sons and daughters of light, sons and daughters of the kingdom in the dark kingdom of this world. So sometimes what we do is say, well, I'm just going to wait till that final day when Jesus comes again. And in the interim, I'll just kind of cocoon away, right? It's like that show Preppers. Anybody seen Preppers. Nobody. Must not be a popular show. George saw it. I saw it. Okay. Uh, Anyway, forget about that. But people... (laughs) I would say go watch some TV, but that's stupid for a preacher to say. (laughs) But often what we do in our Christianity is we cocoon away from the world and we say, I'm just going to hunker down and hold tight till Jesus comes. But that's not the way we're supposed to live. We are supposed to live as faithful and wise Sons and daughters of the king engaging with this world that is in chaos due to sin and is combative concerning the truth. And we are meant to live in that tension. We're meant to live responsibly there, faithfully there, compassionately and courageously in a posture that denotes readiness. And that's really the thrust of the end of the chapter. It's very simple, you see. It's not complicated. There are a couple interpretive questions that we ought to address if we drill down a little further. One of the interpretive difficulties of Matthew 24 is verse 34. I just, Elmer Fudded that, 34. (laughs) Verse 34 says this, This generation shall not pass away until all these things have happened. So Jesus is talking about all these things, wars and rumors of wars, kingdoms rising against kingdoms, famines, natural disasters, persecution, deception, a bent toward wickedness, a denial of the truth, mass apostasy, the destruction of the temple. He talks about all those things and then he says to his audience, this generation will not pass away until they have seen all these things. And we're left to wonder, well, how are we supposed to understand that or interpret that? Because on the surface, it seems like Jesus is supposing that his return would be in the lifetime of his hearers. That would kind of be the obvious reading. And that has obvious problems because he didn't return in the lifetime of his readers. So then we have to wonder, well, did did we have Jesus then? He just didn't know and he made a mistake there. It does say, as we read in verse 36, about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. That's interesting. Jesus in his humanity had not had that detail revealed to him by the Father. We see Jesus all the time in his ministry taking cues from the Father. I do what the Father says. I say what the Father says. This had not been revealed to him. But that does not mean that we are to suppose then that Jesus said something impetuously and made a mistake, and now he's in heaven like, oh, I'm so sorry I told those guys I'd be back in their lifetime. So that's not what that is saying. So what are some of the possible options and why might it be meaningful to us? How might we approach it? Well, there's a lot of options that people give to us. One is that all of these things, right, this generation shall not pass away until all these things have happened, refers only to the signs and not his actual return. So verses 4 through 28 right, where he talked about famine and and wars and rumors of wars and deception and the uh, destruction of the temple and all those things. And indeed, we learned last week that they did see all those types of things in their lifetime. They experienced persecution. They saw apostasy. Uh, There was natural disasters. There was difficulties that they experienced in their lifetime, but they didn't see the second coming. So some scholars say perhaps it's that. It's just about the signs, but not the second coming. Perhaps that is true? I don't think so. Second op- option is that generation is used in a way that refers to the Jewish nation. So uh, some people even see in that picture of the fig tree there, the rebirth of the nation of Israel. And indeed, the nation of Israel was scattered after AD 70, the um, destruction of the temple and the Roman sort of war that happened there with the Jews that Jesus spoke about. They became a nation again in 1948. That is unprecedented and incredible. And it would be true that if Jesus means this generation as the Jewish people and a Jewish nation, that they have indeed endured to see all these things and will see the second coming. That is another possible interpretation. That may be right. I don't think so. The third possibility is that generation is being used here in a broader sense than we usually think about it. When we say generation, we say like your generation, my generation, the generation of my parents, the generation of our kids, like this generation. But the Bible doesn't always use the word that way. The Bible very frequently, especially in the Old Testament, uses the word to talk about a kind or a certain ilk of persons. So we're not talking about an age span. We're talking about a kind of people together. For example, in Psalm 14, we hear about the generation of the righteous. What is not being said is, you know, it was your parents' generation. they were the generation of the righteous. You guys are not. It wasn't an age thing. It wasn't a time thing. It was an ilk thing. It was a kind thing. That there was a kind of person the psalmist was addressing that was pursuing righteousness. We see a similar thing in Psalm 24, where we hear of the generation of those who seek him. Again, it's not talking about age. Differences. It's talking about a kind of person. We've even made a song about this. Oh, God, let us be a generation that seeks and seeks your face. Oh, God of Jacob, give us clean hands. Right? We made a song about that. What we're not saying is, hey, God, let my generation be the generation that seeks you. I don't care about the kids or the old folks. Let my generation be the generation that seeks you. We're not using it that way in the song because the Bible isn't using it that way there. It's talking about a certain kind or ilk of people. It's even used negatively in Jeremiah 7.29. We hear of the generation of his wrath. So it's not to say that he had wrath toward one generation and the next escaped and the previous was fine. It's to say that there is a kind, listen now, an ilk, a kind, an attitude of persons who would be the recipients of God's wrath. The kind of people that he was talking to in chapter 23, the kind of people who were in his audience here who had rejected, refused to acknowledge the work of God. That was, after all, the whole impetus for the chapter is that Jesus had been, again, lambasting those religious leaders who refused to acknowledge the work of God. He pronounced judgment on them, and the disciples said, we have some clarifying questions about this judgment that explains the sides the signs excuse me a world in rebellion to god unbelieving and rejecting god and the results that come from that it explains much of the activity of his return that it is to undo the reverberating effects of sin in this world and it fits the overall context Jesus is saying that there would be this kind of person in rebellion to God, refusing to acknowledge God, that would see all of this unfold and would still be here when Christ came to undo it all, everything that had gone wrong. The next thing that he says has to do with those kind of people. Pick it up in verse 37. He says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. of man for in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken and the other will be left. So Jesus says, before I come back, there'll be a generation, a kind, a certain ilk of people whose ears and hearts are closed off to the work of God. It'll be like it was in the days of Noah before the flood, he says in trying to explain this. First of all, might we just point out that Jesus believed in a literal Noah and a literal flood that Jesus gave heed to what the Old Testament says in truth, and he's illustrating through referencing Noah and the flood, one of the greatest truths of the entirety of Scripture, that God is coming to set up the fullness of his kingdom and rule and reign on earth. He's not going to illustrate that by referencing a myth. Jesus believed in a literal creation. Jesus believed, I believe, in a literal Adam and Eve, in a literal Noah, in a literal flood. And he speaks of a literal return to set up his kingdom. And he's describing there when he says, as it was in the days of Noah, that there would be a generation who were closed off to the work of God. That's what was happening in the period of the flood. We look at it in Genesis chapter 6 little snippet from Genesis chapter 6 and we'll glean some things from this. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created. And with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor or grace, it can be translated, in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. So a couple things to glean there. Number one, God says, I'm going to judge the world because the world is in utter rebellion. And from God's estimation in his righteousness then a world in rebellion is deserving of God's judgment. It's the first thing that we ought to glean from that, that he's making no apologies about this. He is God and he's right and he's righteous. And he's saying that the wickedness that he saw on earth was deserving of his judgment so he would bring judgment. But listen, very importantly, he said, but there will be an exception to judgment. There will be an exception to wrath. He says, but Noah, it's an important but, but Noah found favor or grace. In the eyes of the Lord, and he was righteous. There we see two very important gospel oriented words all the way back in Genesis chapter six grace and righteousness. Those are gospel words because we are saved by grace through faith alone, and the righteousness of Christ is credited to our account that we now stand before God blameless as beloved sons and daughters the exception to judgment given to us in Genesis chapter 6, the exception to those who deserved judgment was that there would be in God's provision grace and the supply of righteousness. And there we see the picture of what Jesus did on the cross, and we put our faith in Christ. The only way ever to escape the wrath of God and the judgment of God is by grace and by receiving his righteousness on our behalf. There's nobody in this story who was like, oh man, this flood is coming and they worked really hard to be good and God was like, okay dude, you can get on the boat too. Didn't it happen that way. It was either they were judged or there was this picture of grace and righteousness. And Noah is directed by God, through God's work, through him, to bring salvation. And Noah became then, in that generation, amongst those people, a preacher of righteousness. 2 Peter chapter 5, verse 2 tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So that when he was asked questions, and let me tell you, when you're building a boat that big in the desert for 120 years, a lot of people have a lot of questions. And when he asked, was asked questions, we are not to assume that he was like, what boat? What are you talking about? That's not even a boat. <laughs> we were told that he was a preacher of righteousness. So Noah said, listen, you are a world in rebellion to God. And God said he's going to judge sin and judge wickedness. Therefore, you need to repent. But the point that Jesus is getting at is that nobody repented at the preaching of Noah. The warnings of judgment were ignored. That is what Jesus is teaching us, the warnings of judgment being ignored by a generation whose ears were closed to what God had to say. That is what Jesus is saying to us in verse 38. Again, when he says, for in the days before the flood, the people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And in verse 39, And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Now, when it says they knew nothing about it, it doesn't mean that God had left himself without witness or they had no idea that this would happen. Noah was a witness. The work that God was doing was the witness. God always warns of judgment. God always leaves himself a witness. This is willful ignorance is what Jesus is teaching us here not that they didn't have the opportunity to know what God had said about righteousness and judgment but they refused to acknowledge what God said about it. And then what we're to glean from verse 38 where it says in the days before the flood people were eating and drinking marrying and giving in marriage is not that those things are bad how many of you eat and drink? Okay, most of us. Wow, three of you raise your hand. The rest of you are dead. And some of us will marry and some of us will be given in marriage. He's not saying that those were the issues. Noah's generation was so wicked, dude. They ate food and they married people, so I wiped them out. It's not what he's saying. This is an idiomatic way of saying they lived their lives merely and purely for themselves and their own concerns and their own pleasures. There was not concern for God in God's will, in God's way, and what God would have them do. They were merely concerned with their flesh and their lives and what they wanted to do. They were going on with life as usual in willful ignorance. And so Jesus says that in verses 40 and 41, there'd be a man there working and one of them would be taken. There'd be a woman there working and one of them would be taken. That taken is referring to judgment. Judgment. The ones that were taken were taken in the wrath of God, in the judgment of God. The ones that were spared was because they came under the grace of God and received the righteousness of God. And so it will be at the coming of Christ. Some see pictured there the rapture of the church. And though I do believe the rapture of the church is in the New Testament, I do not believe that it's here. The context is clearly judgment. When Christ comes to judge It's going to be black and white, very clear. One will remain because they were the recipients of grace and one will be taken in judgment. Now, here's what I want us to feel about that. Because the language is swift and the language is decisive and it leaves no room for a middle ground. One will be left, one will be taken. I want us to feel the weight of God's judgment. Because for God so loved the world that he gave his son that whosoever should believe in him would never perish but have everlasting life. I want us to feel the weight of judgment because Christ himself felt the weight of judgment on the cross in our place and for other sinners. And the passion of God is to save bad people. Can I get an amen from a bad person? (laughs) The passion of God is by grace and through his own righteousness to save bad people. We are the recipients of grace who have received the righteousness of Christ that we might stand before God holy and beloved, fully accepted in grace and with great joy and no shame. And that is a wonderful good news of God's love. And so I want us to feel the weight of judgment because it's real. But God does not want to judge the world. God wants to save the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. But if salvation is rejected, then only judgment remains and God will be righteous. He will not leave sin unpunished. We either accept Christ's punishment that he took for us for our forgiveness or we reject it and we will face it on our own. I want us to feel the weight of that because I want us to be faithful witnesses in the world because God feels the weight of that. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And so Jesus mercifully warns of a generation of willful ignorance about what God said about sin, and righteousness and judgment, willful ignorance, and who merely lived for themselves and their own whims and not the will of God. That's what Jesus is doing there. And his boy, Peter, who was there that day, would go on to write about these same things. Peter would reiterate the idea and say in his second epistle Above all, you have to understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing, and following their own evil desires. So what is this scoffing thing? Verse 4. They will say, where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Pause right there. Can you, do you ever get that sentiment from people? Like, what are you talking about second coming? Nothing has changed since the 60s. I can't believe you guys are still saying this. Maybe you, Christian, even feel that way sometimes because life has left you so raw. This chaotic, truth-combating world has been so hard. Where is this promise of his coming? Peter warns us that much like in Noah's time, in the end time before Jesus comes again, there would be scoffers who are willfully ignoring God's word. In fact, look what it says in verse 5. But they deliberately forget. Notice that phrase, deliberately forget. Selective memory here. That long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of the water and by water, creation. And that by these waters also the world of that time was deluged or flooded and destroyed it. Destroyed it, destroyed it. The judgment of the flood, continuing. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Look what Peter says here. He says that there will be a generation of people who choose to forget that God made them. It's not that they don't actually know. It's not that God didn't give them, back up one slide, Jim. It's not that God left himself without a witness. It's that they willfully, deliberately refuse to acknowledge that God created all things by his word. And then they refuse to acknowledge that there is a judgment for sin. But Peter says here, listen, God has already judged the world once before. Don't be surprised that judgment is coming. This is not God's first rodeo. He judged the world once before in the flood, and he will judge wickedness again. And yet there will be a generation scoffers who say, where is this coming? Verse 8 then says, But do not forget this one thing, right? There are those who forget those things. God created all things. God's righteous and he judges. But now Peter says to us, to God's people, but don't you forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. There's the answer to what does soon mean? With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. Here we are saying, gosh, it's been so long, Lord. How does this work out? And are you really coming? And where are you coming? And he's like, dude, it's only been two days. (laughs) Give me a break here, people. It's only been two days, you teenagers. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. Now look, very importantly for us, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. There it is. There it is. God wants sinners to be saved. He sent Christ to seek and to save the lost. And he is currently, through his spirit in the world, through his people in the world, seeking and saving the lost. God is not slow about his promise. God is passionate about bad people. He wants to save sinners. He desires that none would perish. And you know, I think the reason why sometimes we think God is slow is because we live on the sidelines of what God is doing. And if you live on the sidelines of God's work in the world, then it could seem like nothing is going on and nothing is happening, and when is he ever coming back? Some followers mistake the patience of God for a lack of his present work and so fall into unfaithful living. And if you live on the sideline of God's work and you're merely a spectator, you're a pew potato, and you don't get involved in what God is doing in the world, then yeah, this seems like a long, arduous thing. But if you are involved of God's work, of saving men and women and children, of the good news of the kingdom, being preached to every tongue, tribe, and nation as a witness, then you realize that God is actually kind of rocking in the world. It's a matter of perspective. And Jesus is wanting to bring us into right perspective. That's why Matthew 24, verse 14, last week's text was so important. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to every nation and then the end shall come. We have a cause to live for in this long two days, 2,000 years, and who knows how much longer. We have a purpose for which to live. I want us to feel the weight of God's coming judgment because I want us to be serious about God's good news through Christ going forth in the world through us. But some followers mistake the patience of God for a lack of his present work and so fall into unfaithful living, which is what Jesus addresses in the next couple of verses. In verse 42, he says, therefore keep watch because you do not know the day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. So the clear uh, refrain of Scripture as to when Christ will return is soon, and the clear injunction from Scripture as to what should we do in the meanwhile is be ready. Keep watch, be ready. That means to live in a certain way. Jesus uses this analogy of the thief. It's very commonsensical. He says, if you knew when a thief was coming to your house, you would be ready. So you would not allow him Or her, don't want to discriminate here. You would not allow him or her to break into your house. If you knew she was coming at 2.30 in the morning, you would be there ready to handle your business and protect your stuff. So why don't you think about handling God's business and being involved in God's stuff and live with the same readiness and intentionality rather than just eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage? That's what he's saying right there. He's calling us to an intentional, ready sort of lifestyle. As if the thief were at the door. It's not to say Christ is a thief. It's an analogy, hello. So we are urged to live now. However we would live as if Jesus were coming any second. That takes some really deep thought. If Christ were coming into, uh, let's, let's press the analogy a little bit of the thief. If Christ were coming into my house, how would I be treating my wife? If at any moment Christ were to come to my home, how would I be fathering my children? If at any moment Christ were to walk in my bank, how would I view my finances? If Christ were to come in my bedroom. How would I display my sexuality? We're meant to live in this lifetime on edge intention of the coming of the Lord. That's the intention of what Jesus says here. And Peter picks it up again in the same theme in the following verses starting in verse 10. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Pause right there. That is judgment language, fire and all that stuff. Judgment language. This is unrighteousness, wickedness being destroyed. Everything laid bare is great white throne judgment. Like God sees it all as the ultimate judge language. That's not to say that the ultimate destiny of this world is that God destroys it. The scriptures teach rather that he renews it and makes all things new. This is judgment language. Since everything will be destroyed judgment-wise, wickedness in this way, here's the question for us. What kind of people ought we to be? There it is. Let me drill down on that point. Since Jesus is coming to judge sin, what kind of people should we be in relation to sin? Since God has deemed that sin is worthy of judgment, what should my relationship with sin be? Because I'll tell you what my relationship with sin is often. I'm making excuses for it. I coddle it. I hide it. I create workarounds to do it. I have a rather robust relationship with sin I often find. And the scriptures are calling us to a deep place of thought where we say, well, if Jesus is actually deemed sin that I kind of flirt with and think is kind of cool, worthy of judgment, how then should I live in light of that? Remembering again that I'm a son, a daughter of the king, a member of the kingdom. How then shall we live? Oh, he answers a question for us. You ought to live holy and godly lives. As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming, the only way that I see in Scripture that we possibly speed, so to speak, the coming is Matthew 24, 14. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to every single people group, and then the end will come. That is not to say that we cause Christ to come more quickly. That is to say that we have a cause to live for until he comes, and may he come quickly. We don't usher in jack, cheese, or squat. Jesus brings the kingdom but we sure are supposed to preach the kingdom in this lifetime. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat and then Peter says, but in keeping with his promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the renewal of all things where righteousness dwells in juxtaposition to this world where wickedness dwells. So then, Okay, or in summation, here's the point. He says, so then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, the coming of Christ and the judgment of wickedness and all that goes with it, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. You know what the scripture's doing for me? It's making me think real hard about the way that I live. And I realize in these injunctions, well, here's the way I thought about it this morning. Spotless, blameless, holy, godly. I don't think anybody that knows me well would choose those adjectives to describe me. So it's making me think real hard about my relationship with sin, and the way that I justify it, the way that I flirt with it, and the way that I tease it in the way that I include it rather than flee from it. The call is to repentance. I realize when the scriptures say this, that, man, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not always living that way or even going in that direction. That my goal is not always spotless, blameless, holy, godly. And so <clears throat> I think we got to ask ourselves, in light of what Jesus said in this text, What is it that we need to repent of today? And you know, we think of repentance as like a dirty word. Like some of you people hear that and you hear me say repent and you like wince a little bit. But repentance is an awesome word. It's not a bad word. Right? Someone says, to us like, bro, you need to repent. We're like, whatever, dude, don't judge me. I can't believe you even said that to me. That's not the way it's meant to be. Listen, Peter said to the nation of Israel in the book of Acts, repent, therefore, that times of refreshing may come from being in the presence of the Lord. Repentance is not a bad word or a bad thing. Repentance is a gift that God has given us because the way into the kingdom of grace and love and mercy and power and eternity with Jesus is through repentance. So repentance, when someone says to you, dude, you need to Repent, you'd be like, yeah, bro, thanks. Let's do this. Repentance is a beautiful word. Because from it we receive forgiveness and cleansing. 1 John 1.9. God is faithful. Uh, how does 1 John 1 9 go? Bo, how does 1 John 1 9 go? I can see it, but I can't say it. God is faithful and just. This is so embarrassing. <laughs> this is so horrifically embarrassing. First John, well, stop saying it. I can't hear you. Let me just. First, I've never forgotten this verse in my whole life. He was faithful and just. Thank you, whoever. Who was that? Oh, okay, thank you. Never mind you. This is about me right now. I'm kidding. <laughs> First John 1, nine. if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And that is the goal of God to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But it only comes through Christ, and the avenue is repentance. So when I read this verse, I see that repentance is needed in my life, and repentance is a good thing. And then Jesus says, in light of his coming, we ought to live as faithful and wise servants. He ends here, and we'll end here, and I will try to hasten the day of the end since I am falling apart. He says in verse 45, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him so doing so when he comes. This is, you know, this is imagery here. This is master of the house servant. This is like Downton Abbey type language here. Jesus is using Downton Abbey to illustrate this. Verse 47, truly I tell you, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked And says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. That is violent, rebellious life. The master, that servant, will come on a day when he does not expect him, at an hour when he is not aware of it. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So once again, Jesus draws a really hard line. Hypocrites is clearly a referral back to the religious leaders that he was speaking to in chapter 23. He called them hypocrites about 10 times because they refuse to acknowledge the work of God in their generation, in their midst, among them. And he says that those type of people who refuse to go God's way have a certain fate in a certain place, but you are not meant to be that way. You are meant to be faithful and wise servants of the Most High God. Faithful and wise. That means that you are a servant of God and not of yourself. That you, we together, have been given a mission that is for God's glory and not our own glory. And God is big and He's beautiful and He's a giver and He cares about all the beautiful things He created in this world. So it's interwoven with our life and all the fun and awesome things we get to do. But make no mistake about it the big picture is for God's glory, God's purposes, He's the master of the house. And so we ask ourselves this question then, what is my purpose in the midst of God's purpose? God is in the business of saving sinners all over the world. How do I fit into the purposes of God? How do I transcend merely going through the motions of life and living for myself and become a faithful and wise servant of God? It'd be good for that servant if his master found him doing so when he came. So ask yourself the very poignant question, what do I want to be found doing when Jesus comes back? And do that thing. May God give us the grace to repent where we need to repent, to live like daughters and sons of the king. And may he give us the power of the Holy Ghost to go and to preach and to witness and to be stewards of his mission in this super crazy broken world. Amen? Thank you, God, for your word and for the promise of your return. And thank you for the hope that brings. Lord, I, just, I didn't mention him in the sermon, but I want to pray first for the sufferers in this room for whom at this moment life has left them so raw that they really just need the hope of your return to renew all things. Pray that today, in your promises, they would find peace and hope, that you would sustain them in hope. I pray for those of us like myself who hear these things, and we just I, I know I just need to repent. Spotless, blameless, holy, godly. Thank you for the righteousness that comes from you, but thank you also God, that you call us to walk in righteous paths of obedience for your glory. Please help me, please help us. Holy Spirit. Help us to see the ways where our lives are in dissonance with the truth of Jesus and to willingly and joyfully repent and come back into the light. And please, Lord, for all of us, help us to live for things that are bigger than ourselves. Thank you for the gifts you've given us and the abilities and the opportunities and all the fun and beautiful things that I can't wait already to do this week. But please, God, May we also be concerned and consumed by and for your glory among the nations. And may we be faithful witnesses. And we pray together as the church has always prayed, Jesus, even so, come quickly.